Okay, I think we're ready enough, and if, if anyone walks up uh, just for the Bible study, sort of silently point them down here to walk down to the front in an embarrassing way to get notes. Uh, and uh, I'll put my Bible on top of them so they don't blow away. Uh, we're in our third week going through Galatians. We've got one more after this. Uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this time in your word. And thank you for the food. We are, have enjoyed it. In your son's name, amen. Okay, uh, we got through, I tried to break the book up into fourths, kind of, and so we're halfway through uh, chapter four uh, now. We'll get halfway through five, and uh, um, uh, it's a... Uh, um, and since the whole thing, it's a short book, and the whole thing is this uh, almost desperate appeal from St. Paul to the Galatians to not get um, taken in by this false teaching. Tragically, for 2,000 years, the false teaching of this kind has been very popular, and uh, consequently, people can look at Galatians and never see the forest for the trees, no matter how intense Paul gets. We're up uh, to verse 12 of chapter 4. Let's see if I can spot this. I, I need some notes myself. Um, he says in verse 12, Brethren, I beseech you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, it's it's sort of an odd phrasing, as Paul's known for. Um, it, it, and if we don't remember where we were last week, there was a uh, um, um, uh, the preceding verse, verse 11 of uh, chapter 4 says, I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. We just said you observe days, months, and years. And uh, uh, consequently... Uh, I'm concerned that all I did in you regarding the gospel didn't take. Um, and it's, uh, uh, when you read chapter, verse 12, and says, I beseech you, become as I am, there is a, um, uh, just, Tristan needs a set back there. Too late. Um, he's, he's beseeching them to... What he was trying to do, laboring in them to produce a certain result, has a certain result that you should have by this point in your mind. That life by faith, life by uh, faith, not law. Uh, the Christian life is not to be trapped in the bondage to the Mosaic law. And he says, become as I am. That's not just standing out there without anything surrounding it. He says, I labored over you to produce something, and I'm concerned that it's not been produced, become as I am. And then he, then he steps with that rest of that verse, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of, my, of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, 
he's, he's establishing, he comes back to it a few times in this section, about his link with them and how much they were his children in the gospel. Uh, he uses that image of being in labor, uh, uh, things born in them. Uh, this is something that uh, Paul had connection with certain churches more than others because he was the founding member. Like he wasn't in Rome. The church was already long existent in Rome before Paul got there. But he founded others and led them to preach the gospel to them at first. So he says, I've become as you are. I've, uh, you know how that verse, uh, I don't know the reference off the top of my head. Uh, I've become all things to all men that I might by any means win some. And he was off in Galatia at some point, and I think this verse, a couple verses, suggests that it was sometime in his Tarsus um, uh, existence before the first missionary journey. Because we look at the first missionary journey where he goes into the province of Galatia, and there's no mention of him going on that trip because he was sick. He says, I was, I preached the gospel to you because I had an ailment, and um, it was an unpleasant one. We're not sure what. Um, one of the leading uh, ideas is it's an eye problem of some uh, uh, nature, because he says, um, verse 15, what has become of the satisfaction you felt? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So there is a something that would make them not want him around, maybe because it was ugly, I don't know, what kind of, you know, you know people with eyes that stick out, uh, uh, or if it was a bad eyesight thing that he needed to be uh, uh, helped, had an aid, and somebody to guide him. There may have been a problem in that regard. But he said they were still, because of the gospel, treating him like an angel of God as Christ Jesus. Um, and there is a, a little bit of, a, obviously from his conversion, when he's blinded, and then scales fall off his eyes when Ananias comes to him uh, and heals him, uh, people say, okay, there's that, there's this. Um, um, and then there was the comment in Acts 23 when he's before the Sanhedrin and the high priest uh, tells him to be struck and he, he chews out the high priest. And the guy says, you don't talk to the high priest like that. And he says, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. So we're dealing with potentially someone who doesn't see well maybe problematic, maybe ebbs and flows, whatever. But that's the, the only thing we can be really sure of. We know that um, um, he, when he talks about the thorn in the flesh in, in Corinthians, and that passage is on the right-hand side there, um, because of the abundance of revelation, the thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. So you, you stop and wonder, well, Evan... If he got healed of his blindness on the Damascus Road, why would you say that the miracle didn't take? You know, it, it didn't fix it forever? Uh, well, no, if it's that. I mean, it, it, something has gone wrong physically with Paul that was he viewed as something from the evil one to keep him from, keep his feet on the ground because he was uh, having revelations like that friend he had that was caught up to the third heaven. We're talking about 
uh, mystic, ecstatic revelations of God. And to keep him grounded, this ailment was present in his life. We don't really know what it was. You could try to read through the works of Paul and Acts and try to figure it out, but uh, not a whole lot of hints. But with Galatians, I did some, I was trying to think, was there any kind of spa in Galatia up by Ancyra or Gordium or something? I, I couldn't find anything, but uh, <laughs> it seems that he might have been on that trip uh, to deal with his ailment somehow. Um, he said, you, you were, we were close. I became as you are. I want you to become as I am and how I live the Christian life. And I want to always remind us that this is a Pharisee of Pharisees who was killing Christians because of the law and for the law. Um, so there is a, um, a degree of um, um, intensity about the change in Paul. It's very pronounced. And you'll, you'll note in the language in this section tonight how intense it gets. Have I then verse 16, become your enemy by telling you the truth. You're looking at things that um, the words, and I don't know if it translates into the, the Greek this way, words like beseech, afraid, um, uh, enemy, they're like People set against each other, and he's really concerned about things. Um, there is um, something about truth that we sometimes don't want to lose the relationships we have for the sake of something true. Now, obviously, you don't want to destroy a relationship over which is better, chocolate or vanilla. And it may be that vanilla is better than chocolate. It may be. But um, you wouldn't put that truth forward as uh, any truth is always better than a relationship. This truth, the truth of the gospel, that if I don't hold on to it, if I preach any other gospel than that which Paul has preached, he says, let them be cursed. So we know this is an intensity. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? We are moved in many ways by uh, things that are not reasons to move in our ideas. Well, how welcome you get in a, um, in a group. You find that you move to a new town, you join a group of Christians, and they all believe in X, you know, whatever the unique theology is of their group. And you find that your acceptance, your acceptance is more important than the idea. That people pick up the idea without any idea defense coming their way. They don't ask for the scriptures. They don't ask for the reasoning. They don't ask for um, um, the case to be made. Because we're moved. Uh, I was talking to John Hill a few weeks ago about this. About how, um, or John had brought it up, about how much emotion plays in what things we hold. Even our personality types. We like, you know, you're kind of a macho guy. You like macho 
theologies. If you like, uh, if you're an emotional guy, you might like a real charismatic theology. Whatever the, you know, uh, and it doesn't make it wrong, but it didn't make it right. And sometimes, Paul's making an emotional appeal to the Galatians as well, but it's on top of the emotion has to be coupled with the truth. It's not that it can be, uh, uh, I'll pull out the stops on another emotion to stop the emotion that is driving them. (coughs) He's pointing back to what's true. He says in uh, verse 17, they, speaking of the Judaizers, they make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. And that's sort of a, a one, one more strange verse by Paul. They make much of you. Well, everybody likes that, you know. Uh, everyone loves attention. If, if you were uh, uh, brand new, um, I always give this illustration. It used to be years ago. I don't know if it's still the case. I, Baptist Church in Pullman, if you visited and signed the card and put your contact information on it, an attractive girl with a pie would show up at your house that week. (laughs) And uh, it's great that they make much of you. Well, there's no crime in that. That's just good, hospitable, you know, uh, make a good impression. And it did make a good impression. It says, but the problem is for no good purpose. And look how they deal with getting your attention by attending to you. They're attending to the Galatians, and then they're moving the Galatians to outside the camp. He says, they want to shut you out. And that's one of the most powerful emotional drives to get people to want to be in. Right? So that you may make much of them. If you find out that this group that attends to you, you know, you're brand new in a Christian community, and uh, everybody introduces themselves, has coffee with you, has lunch with you, and, uh, and they, they find out that you're not in the same theological camp, and, and so it becomes evident to you that that's a back pew viewpoint. That's, that's the, you're not in the deeper walk. You know, I'm sure you'll, you know, be interested in pursuing the deeper walk, but there is the inner ring, uh, St. Clive, um, uh, C.S. Lewis says that the inner ring is the greatest evil known to man. That, I don't know if he was being hyperbolic, but the greatest evil because it's how the world runs, by excluding people so they want to be included, so they can exclude people. You know, there, there's all, and there's always an inner ring. Inside each ring you join, there's another ring of in, more further inclusion. That whether it's in a business setting or a school setting, they know that if they shut you out, you will want to be in. All of those groups in high school, there was probably only in your big high school, there might have been 50 in each of those groups, and might have been thousands of students, and all the students knew they weren't in. And they wish the jocks or the collegians or the greasers would include them. If I only could, you know, make, make my resume good enough to be in. Well, this manipulation, for no good purpose, is happening to uh, the Gentiles. 
the Gentiles are being forced to become Jews so that they can be included in the deeper walk, the greater piety, um, and they're getting a lot of ten attention for it, but uh, it's the wrong view, the truth of it matters, and then the means of when Paul argues that he doesn't do anything out of guile or deceit, but by a clear statement of the gospel, you want situations that if they want you to change your mind, they give your mind the things that you need to have to change it. Because if she's pretty enough, you'll become a papist. If she's pretty enough, that was the, the worst thing about that movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. He just becomes, when it goes from a New England Protestant, probably Anglican, to a Greek Orthodox individual with no, no discussion of whether it's true or false, just because he was in love with her. And we all cheer because we think love conquers all. And what's the real point of knowing something definitely? But he says himself, for a good purpose, remember he said, they make much of, make much of you, but for no good purpose. For good purpose, it is always good to be made much of. Attention is the nature of love. You, you face people when you love them. You hate them, you turn away from them. So when someone is turned towards you, you think it's, that it's love. And when it is love, it's going to be attentive. But only for good purpose is it good. You know when the bad sort of kids paid attention to you and offered you dope. Why do you think they call it dope? Um... Bad company ruining good morals. Well, they wanted your company, so they came after you. For good purpose, it's still good to go after people. And not only when I'm present with you. He says, here I am, wherever he is when he's writing this. He might be on the way to Jerusalem of, um, uh, for the uh, uh, Jerusalem Council uh, or before they left for that meeting. Um, so he's probably writing it from Antioch or further south, and it's got to get to Galatia, and it's trying to be attentive to someone in a letter. You know, well, he, he, he makes the point in the next line. My little children, with whom I am again in travail, is, uh, so you're my children, I'm in labor for you again, until Christ be formed in you. He brought them into the kingdom of God, by the preaching of the gospel. So he labored over them like a mother bearing children, and then he is again in travail, trying to bring Christ alive in them as he should be, until he be formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now, and to change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Because what generally happens in a letter is you're trying to have your prose register everything you feel, and feeling has to go after some pretty big words and intensifiers, superlatives, you know, just sort of, because you want people to, you know, if you ever wrote a letter to your girlfriend, uh, uh, you're off at war, boot camp, something, you're off at college, wherever you are, you write this letter, and you want her to know how much you care. 
It's embarrassing to read those letters later because it's not that you didn't care, it's just a little bit too much. And if you were there with her, a mere glance would have covered it. You would have conveyed to her how much you cared by how much you smiled when she walked in the room. Because when you're present, Paul wants to be present so he could change his tone because he's perplexed. He doesn't, he doesn't know how to read what they're going through. He's heard the news out of Galatia. He doesn't know what it all means. He's trying to write a letter that covers the bases and it makes everything intense. And that's what we benefit from because we will never be until glory with Paul. He will never visit us. So he won't be able to talk to us like people talk to one another. But it is a, um, uh, we're, we're trying to cross, you've heard me say before, probably ad nauseum, um, that you're all alone in the cosmos and you're desperately trying to send a signal across the void to everyone you know to try to get what kind of relationship and information you can get out of these other autonomous agents who are alone in the void. And you're making whatever noises and facial expressions. You watch these little kids learning to make a facial expression. This looks like anger. And they have these furrowed brows and, and they, uh, the lip comes out. I hope as you become adults, little kids, you don't keep the lip thing. But we're desperate to get our point across because we need to be connected. We're disconnected by autonomy and we establish connections by these communications and it's a very important thing that we find the best way to do it and be alert to what's, what could go wrong in a letter and what can go wrong in person, what could go right in a letter, and what could go right in a person. So he's made this, this first paragraph is a uh, kind of a insistent, uh, hey, I know you, you know me, um, hey, what's up? Uh, this is a big deal. I'm really concerned that Christ be formed in you. Now, it's a, it's a matter of, when we talk about to form Christ in us, it's really it's because it's a second thing. He was in travail with them before for the gospel. He's in travail for them now for Christ being formed in them. And that's sanctification. You're being brought up to the maturity of God in Christ. That's what he's looking for. Verse uh, 21. Tell me, and he gets steps back into the argument here. Tell me, you who desire to be under law, do you not hear the law? Now, first off, the, he goes into Genesis at this point. The Jews had different references for law. There's the law itself. You go to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and you get the law. The actual rules, one after another. Um, but they also referred to the Pentateuch as the law, and they also referred to the whole Old Testament as the law. So sometimes a New Testament writer will say, as it says in the law, and they'll quote something out of Psalms. You know, it's not out of the Mosaic Code. And here he's talking about Genesis. It's a historic book. And he gives the account, verse 22, of what actually happened on the ground in, in, in chapter 21 of Genesis. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave, and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, 
the son of the free woman through promise. You know the story. That's accurate to what the Old Testament taught. Sarah was promised that she'd be the mother of a child of the promise. It passed her years of childbearing. It would have to be a miracle. It is not according to the ways of women. So menopause had happened. She was 100, <laughs> 99, something like that. And so because like so many of us who can't escape the flesh, they knew the child had to come, so she said, why don't you take my handmaid, Hagar, Egyptian girl, and, uh, and have relations with her, and then I, she could bear the child on my knees, and uh, it'll be kind of like, you know, my kid, you know, kind of. So it was entirely a fleshly operation. I'm going to figure out how to do this, and I'm going to do it through the flesh. Now, we know that when the child of the promise came, it was also fleshly. Abram had relations with Sarah. She managed to get pregnant, though she shouldn't have. But that child's presence was because of promise. That child's presence was because of promise. And Hagar's child, Ishmael, was not because of promise. It was because of the flesh. And they had, Abraham had concerns. Well, he asked the Lord, couldn't Ishmael stand in your sight, you know, as the, as the kid? He said, no, I want it to be of the free woman, Sarah. The slave bore the fleshly child. The free woman bore the promised child. Now, this is an allegory. Now, I, Old Testament in, interpretation can go really off the rails here, okay? There is nothing in the Old Testament that hints at Paul's handling, Okay? It's just an invention of Paul. I think he's making it an allegory. It's not that he read the Old Testament and said, oh, it's an allegory. I can tell from the text. He just gave you what the text said. Abraham had two sons, slave free, one according to the flesh, one according to the promise. That's all you need to know about the history. Then he says, this is an allegory. He's telling you what he's going to say. He's making it into an allegory. And it's the most insulting allegory you can come up with. It's the opposite of everything that happened because Abraham had Sarah, Sarah uh, bear a child. The child was Isaac. The child Isaac had uh, two kids, Jacob and Esau. He picked Jacob, and Jacob became the child of the promise. And then the 12 tribes came out of Jacob, and then all of Israel came out of the 12 tribes. Ta-da, the Jews. Into Egypt. They get out of Egypt. The law comes. Everything about this is saying that the law and Moses and the, all the glories of Israel's history come through Sarah and the child of the promise, Isaac. He says, these women are two covenants. One is from Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Okay, we're on board thus far. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds, now this is where it gets off the rails, to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. Because this whole point in this letter is the law is slavery. The law is custodial, superintending. You needed it for those years because God needed to control you, constrain you, keep you on the track. But that just meant that all the Jews under the law were under this slavery. 
And so that's the end result. So they must be, in Paul's allegory, the child of the slave woman. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, it wasn't... It's the Jerusalem above. Not another earthly covenant. The covenant is not... A lot of people look at uh, the church as the new Israel. And it speaks of the church that way. But the church is a heavenly Israel, a holy people, uh, a people of faith. Uh, the, the tabernacle and the temple were earthly shadows of the real thing in heaven. There's a heavenly Jerusalem, not the one in Revelation, but a heavenly Jerusalem, like a heavenly temple that Moses made a copy of on earth. And then Solomon made a copy of the copy. Then Herod made a copy of the copy of the copy. But we did not then with Christ overturn that old physical covenant and replace it with another physical covenant. The problem is between a spiritual covenant and a fleshly one. There are two covenants here. One is slaves, and when you run, when you run the flesh, by the flesh, there has to be it's just like you have a meeting. I don't, I don't know if they teach kids this anymore. I remember having sessions in junior high, I think, on Robert, Robert's Rules of Order. Any meeting could be run by that mosaic law. In the military, they had the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and it did read like Moses. We always need that. You, you institute a physical covenant, you have to institute a law because only spiritual nations are run by spirits. Now, he makes the point, one is slavery, the other is free. Now, I want you to be thinking, when it says the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, when you come to the conclusion, I mentioned this last week about the nature of this not being a theology I want you to hold. You will hold it as a theology if you agree with Paul. But it's not important, as much important that you hold the theology that you say on some test someone gives you. I believe it's faith, not the law. Because many Christians down through many hundreds of years would say the same. But they don't live the same. Have you been made free? Are you a child of the new Jerusalem in heaven that is free and they, that is your mother. Like Paul, you know, is kind of their mother too. You know, when he's the one in labor, I'm in travail with you till Christ be formed in you. We are, uh, we're supposed to bear witness that the thing we know and hold and experience is, um, is what he says here, rather than your theology claim it. Theology should only claim it after you have been it. For it is written, verse 27, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in travail. For the children of the desolate one are many more than the children of her that is married. That's out of uh, Isaiah 54. It's over on the side if you want to read it. And feel free to look those up contextually. Now we, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. 
So we're not like Ishmael of slavery. We're like Isaac of promise. Remember we said last week that promise by nature, my relationship with it is not command and control. It is belief. It's trust. Someone gives you a promise, you trust them in it. That's the exchange is trust. The exchange is faith. And you are children of promise. You are children of a free mother. And so this freedom ought to be obvious in you. And you might want to keep start asking yourself, how is in my Christian life the freedom obvious in me? Now, of course, in a Bible study like uh, Backyard Big House, you got the smoking section over there, and there was wine at dinner. Talk about liberty. At Liberty University uh, in Virginia, I talked to students there, and the basic joke is, ask them about smoking, and they say, we're not at liberty to do that. <laughs> had lots of double meaning and lots of, you know, well, <coughs> law, had some laws had stepped in. So, but, but, but it's not just a matter of choosing whether you eat food offered to idols or you have a certain um, uh, allowance for yourself to have a glass of wine. Um, we're talking about whether you live your moral life, your righteousness before God by freedom, or is it always a referent to the rules? We're children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who is born according to the Spirit, and so it is now. now. This is what Paul has been followed around later on in his ministry by Jews, ticked off that Paul was preaching the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles and was telling them they did not need to follow the law of Moses. And so they were stoning him, dragging him outside cities, all sorts of things. This is pretty early, nothing like that we know of has happened yet. But they persecute this direction. Now, he's, that's another slight hint that he's using the Septuagint, like when we read uh, last week on the 430 years between the promise and the law. Uh, and it was cleared up by the Septuagint. Here, you know, your Bible probably says Isaac was playing, I mean, Ishmael was playing with Isaac. I think my translation says that. Except two, which it says sporting with. So that could be a little more intensified. He was reading it, Paul was reading it as Ishmael was persecuting, was persecuting in some way, or being mean to, or having his way with Isaac in such a way that now the children of the promise are being persecuted by the children of slavery. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. That's one place in that whole story. You know, I don't know if you ever read through that and you get to that part. Hagar's out in the wilderness and she's afraid Ishmael's going to die and she wanders off and doesn't want to hear the child's cries. And you go, my gosh, Abraham, what did you do? Drove that woman out with her kid, you know, uh, because the wife, who was kind of, you know, you know, a little too intense about this, a little too jealous, a little too mean, um, it, seems like, it seems like a dark spot on Abraham. A lot of things in this section do. But 
when you get to this verse, it's almost like this is a, the portion of it that looks like it's saying what Paul is talking about. The child of the slave will not inherit with the child of the free woman. Drive her out. Paul is attempting to drive out the children of the slavery and leave behind in the church the children of the free. So it's a direct, almost a direct, a direct image. Be worth looking at. So, brethren, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And again, we ask ourselves, how is it evident that I'm a child of a free woman? Um, it, it, when Paul was uh, arrested, one of the Roman officers was talking to him about his, you know, uh, his citizenship with Rome, and uh, the Roman officer goes, I, my, I bought my citizenship for X amount of bucks. And Paul says, I was born a citizen. And the guy got really polite. Because you know the difference, whether you're freeborn or whether you're you know, a natural-born American. I was, I was born and raised here. My, my grandpappy was here. My great-grandpappy. We came over in 1740, the Wilsons, Montrose, Scotland. That's, uh, we're pretty American. And that, you know, the people who are newcomers here and are working towards their citizenship, they, they yeah, that's something that's standing. And they hope someday that their descendants will have the same standing of natural-born, first, you know, from the time they were born, they were Americans. We know the difference. Check on it in yourself. Do you function as a slave child, or do you function, who has been told theologically that he's free, but you just have a tendency to want to do the right thing if there's a rule to get you to do the right thing? Verse 1 of chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now there's, a, there's the sanctification inclination. You know, you say, oh, when he said earlier in the book, are you so foolish, having begun with the spirit, you're now ending with the flesh? Are you, are you, gonna do, are you that dumb? Are you, are you, are you just crazy training it, and so many Christians talk about, you know, we get saved by grace, we live our lives by a New Testament, uh, New Covenant administration of the, of the law. They want to get the law back in there, somehow. It's very hard for them to read the Old Testament when it says definite things, and people like definite things about what you do and don't do, um, and it's of God, but it was not for what you think it was for. You're for freedom. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When the Lord set us free, when he says in his own ministry, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He says, I, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, there's something really wonderful if you don't, about this freedom, about this rest, about this, um, not this weight hanging over you that neither, Peter said, neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. So why were we going to put that on the Gentiles? It didn't work for us. It wouldn't work for them. And he was saying that as a Christian to other Christians and who were, who knew from their own track record, 
that their attempt to keep the law was not efficacious. We need to have the right view of it. Now, again, I've mentioned before when people consider you an antinomian, they think that an antinomian, someone who's against the law, is just trying to find excuses to run around in sin. We're finding that this is not a yoke that is no yoke. It's what we are drawing on God's righteousness to produce the righteousness um, uh, that he wants out of us. The law could not produce, but freedom can. Freedom in the spirit. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now this, he starts to ramp it up here. He's, uh, circumcision is the uh, you might say the, the walk in the aisle. Uh, that's, how you, that's how you become a Jew. It's kind of a drag, but that's what it was. And, uh, um, and it was a very uh, known commodity, because there was a lot more public nudity in the ancient world than we realize. And one of the basic problems in Palestine in the... Uh, uh, late B.C. years and early um, A.D. was any sports you played, you did naked. Okay? Running races, everything. Now, it's not, it wasn't co-ed, so it wasn't ladies running around naked and men running around naked. It was just men running around naked. Well, the Jews, a lot of the young Jews, didn't want to be left out of these Olympic-style sporting contests, and they didn't want anyone to see that they were Jews, because it was pretty obvious when you're naked. Now, this was a, so it's a very painful situation to go through as an adult. You're a, a Gentile Galatian being convinced to go the distance for piety, and it's something that is going to change your very, people are going to be aware of you. When Timothy was circumcised on the second missionary journey, the people in town knew his dad was a Greek. His mom was a Jewess. Um, and so Paul felt the need to circumcise Timothy because of the broad knowledge. You say, well, who's going to be checking whether you are or not? Is it like a, a vaccine passport, a circumcision passport? No, because in too many situations, it was very evident to people. So it's, it's, it's very central. It's the mark of Judaism that was given to Abraham. Not uh, the mark of the Hebrew people. Before the law, 430 years before the law, and this was the, the thing that followed them. He says, if you do, Christ is of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's bound to keep the whole law. Because, and I've said this already a couple times probably, if you do something because it's in the law, you have to do everything that is in the law. Okay? If you gave it authority to have your private parts cut apart, you gave it the authority to dictate your diet, your celebrations, your, your sacrifices, your obligations, everything in the moral code, everything in the ceremonial code. If the law has authority, to make you do this, circumcision, then you have to keep the whole law. And then he says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. That, that pun is intended. Okay? 
You cut yourself off from Christ. Christ is no advantage to you. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Death in the bleachers. Um, and maybe we don't think about freedom and slavery enough. We fought a war over slavery a few hundred years ago. hundred and something. I don't know. 170 years, something like that. Um, and we don't, it's sort of like a, a shibboleth. We don't you know how easily it is to be called a racist. So, um, but we need to meditate on slavery. We need to meditate on freedom. I like that verse when it talks to slaves. Paul, another place on a different subject, says, if you're a slave, don't worry about it, stay a slave. But if freedom avails itself, take opportunity in it. And that's where we are with the gospel. Freedom is away from the law, away from priestcraft, away from... Uh, legal observances to keep you righteous. Freedom to be righteous. Take opportunity in it. We don't understand words like lordship. We don't understand words like master. When Christ washes the feet of the disciples at the Last Supper, and they say, you know, you should be doing this because you're our master. He says, yeah, I am your master and your Lord. And we just let that flush out the back of our head. We don't even think what it means to have a master or think what it means to have a Lord. Those are just words that we apply to Christ. They're religious terms. We need to be thinking about this freedom. We need to be realizing how much of an insult bringing slavery back in, back under bondage for your life, and you're doing it all for Jesus. Now, we could probably think of all sorts of uh, illustrations that would bring us to uh, a similar situation where, where someone was going to prove how much they cared by doing everything the person didn't want to have happen. I was reading some kind of meme, not a meme, it was a, a chat thing that was about nice guys trying to prove to girls that they cared by doing all the things for the girls the girls did not want done but they were doing it for the girl. And they couldn't understand why the girl didn't like it. You know, that was a, a basic misconception of men. We need to have it clear that not only you know what slavery is, you know what freedom is, that you also know what God wants. He wants you to be free. He doesn't want you to be a slave. And that, and if you start offering him slavery, if you start offering him slavery, what he wants you to freely turn I mean, it's like approaching a, um, a girl's parents in the 1300s B.C., making a deal with 40 camels that I'll take that one. And the girl becomes your wife. Ah, it works out. Different things for different times. But it's a different thing, and we actually like it when we have the freedom that a woman decides whether or not she wants to be with that guy. It's more satisfying to the guy if he has freely chosen wife, not a, she chose him, not he just chose her. There are all sorts of things. Give it some thought. If, if, if you're going to walk away with anything this evening, it's the, it's, it's, do I function like a free man? 
do I, is that how I look at ethics? And we're getting to that in just a second, the ethics part. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, this is the introduction to it, for through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. There you go. That's, you know, you can put that on a t-shirt, put it on your fridge. Through the Spirit, God's work in you. By faith, your work, your accomplishment, your action, your attitude, whatever you want to call the faith. We wait for the hope of righteousness. Those two things conspire to bring you to holiness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, and here is important, nor uncircumcision, is of any avail but faith working through love. It's not the negation of the thing under the law. It's not the elimination, I don't have to do the law, or I do have to do the law. It's neither. Is of any avail but faith working through love. Now, this is something, when I mention it to people, but well, why would you, if you didn't follow the Ten Commandments, why would you be? I usually it ends up with an argument about the uh, Great Commission, where Christ sends the disciples out. And I, I tell people, I think that's just a command to the disciples, not to the church at large. I mean, you could differ with me on that. But in this discussion with others, <coughs> in, in this discussion with others, um, I... Uh, um, uh, they say, well, why would I tell anybody about the gospel then? Well, I, I always say, well, I don't know, because you love them? Because you care? You love your God and you love your neighbor? Certainly you would tell them the path of salvation. They are so entrenched in not doing something unless there's a rule telling them to do it that if you remove the rule, they think you won't do it. But it's faith working through love. That's what is the inertial force, is the love you have. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And this is a favorite verse of mine. Verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Put it in your vocabulary. You're talking to some fellow believer, really a Christian friend, but they're caught up in a legalistic church or just their own ideas or law-oriented. Just say, excuse me, but this persuasion is not from him who calls you. It'll sound familiar, strangely familiar, because it sounds better English than you've got. And they say, what that's from? Well, you know, just look at Galatians 5. It's there. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Meth, not even once, okay? This, remember Paul, that earlier part of Galatians, he has this knockdown drag out with Peter? Because Peter just stopped eating with the Gentiles when the Jews were in town. That was enough to trigger Paul. A little leaven. This is what, we, what I have here in Matthew 16 on the side. Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There are approaches to your life that came from God down through history, but weren't for the purpose of salvation or holiness, and people think they are. And a little bit of that, where you think you're being more pious and better, 
by this path is, uh, is false. It's not from him who calls you. It is not from God that you would say such a thing. And a little bit of it will infiltrate. And it ought to philosophically, like you said, if you get circumcised, you're bound to keep the whole law. You're saying it has authority. And as soon as you give in on one small point, a person who wants you to be more of a law abider will work that very aggressively to say, and don't you think you want to be giving your 10%? Now, I don't know, I hope I didn't derail anybody's mind about, about that. I'm not a big fan of the tithe either because it's law of the Jews and give 10% if you want to. Give 10%, give 20%. I don't care. Do what pleases you in God and Christ through love. Faith working through love. Look at your wallet and say, what am I going to give for this? But as soon as I say 10%, somebody has you on a string. They know what other strings to pull to get you to stop eating bacon. God forbid. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. Now, I rarely get to say that about a view I hold. I feel like saying it a lot about views I hold. This view I hold, since I hold it hopefully in mirror image of St. Paul's, this is a really aggressive don't take any other view than what I'm saying. And don't even take a view from me if I said something different than what I already said. Remember he said, if, even if I or an angel from God came and told you something different, we should be damned. It's the truth of this message. Is it true or is it false? You'll take no other view than mine, and he who is troubling you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But if I, brother still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Now, you say, you say, didn't you mention a bit ago that he had Timothy circumcised? Circumcision or uncircumcision is of no avail. He didn't have Titus circumcised. Remember that he made that point earlier in the book. Because of certain concerns, you could be circumcised. Somebody could be circumcised for health concerns but never out of response to the law. It's not whether you are or whether you aren't. You don't seek to be uncircumcised if you are. You don't seek to be circumcised if you in response to the law. He's not preaching circumcision, though he, may, he did have Timothy circumcised. Well after this moment, uh, second missionary journey. In that case, the stumbling block of the cross has been removed. This is, even for Christians inside Christian circles who hold to the law, one measure or another, they're grabbing, usually they grab portions, which they're not allowed to do, and have it be law. If it's law, it's all law. If you're doing even do not murder, okay? Says that in the Ten Commandments. If I'm not murdering one of you, because the law said not to murder, all of the law is incumbent on me to the same degree. If I don't murder you because I love you and I love my God, I also didn't murder, I did the righteous thing, but I didn't do it by law. This is a stumbling block that people don't know how to access. I was in a discussion 
a week or so ago with somebody, a Christian worker, in another group, and uh, he couldn't imagine being led spiritually to do something by what the Holy Spirit had done in you. There had to be a program, had to be a, a bureaucracy, a thing decided, we are about this, and that was then, you know, instituted in whatever group they were in. It's not easy. This is an easy, this is one of the, um, this is one of the um, um, strange things about our religion. A lot of people have tried to make Christianity just like the other religions, just like the Jewish religion before it, just like other priestcraft and temples and gods being observed in sacrifices. Rules. This is different. This is the nature of a man's commitment to his God, and his God making his home with the man and changing the way man is. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And he just told you, that faith working through love, the Holy Spirit with faith bringing the hope of righteousness. It's so important to Paul, he says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would mutilate themselves. The word is amputate in most usages. Uh, it was used when Peter cut off the high priest's servants here. Or when Paul says, you know, if your hand causes you, your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Same word. So he's saying, these circumcisers, I think one translation, it might be Phillips, maybe Phillips, says, they should go the whole way and castrate themselves. <coughs> That's what he's getting at. He said, I would just <coughs> unman yourselves. I wish they would just hurt themselves badly. Maybe it's not for the pain he's looking for, but uh, um, for you we're called to freedom, brethren. Now this is a statement that I want you to remember about holiness, because remember, faith working through love, we're not just hippies that are uh, joining some commune where we claim to love and just are really passive people, listening to a lot of Gordon Lightfoot and other awful experiences. Um, I hope no Lightfoot fans were here. But. That's not Christianity. You were called to freedom, verse 13, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. That lays it out for you. Just like you said at the beginning, going back to the law is you began with the spirit, you're now ending with the flesh. The flesh is law. The slavery is law. Children of the slave are children of the flesh. It's law. Now, you're not that way. We don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the other kind of the flesh, but through love be servants one another. And this is where it lets you kind of into the inside skinny on love. It's pointed at others. For the whole law is fulfilled, verse 14. In one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
when Christ is asked the, two, the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And those are two commandments. One, they're not in the ten. Neither one are in the ten. They're hidden in the law someplace. The love your neighbor as yourself is at the end of a boundary marker law. You shall not move a neighbor's boundary marker, for you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, yoinks, you know, he knows, he knows where the memory, just like the faith was commemorated and began in people like Abraham, we are of the same line as this, you might say, true virtue that's hidden in the law, that the love for your God and the love for your neighbor produces the holiness that the law couldn't produce. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's so much a part. Now, you, I'm open to other ideas about what you think love includes. But it, it does include looking to the other. Be servants of one another. And then he, as a contrary, verse 15, the last verse, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you're not consumed by one another. That's basically the other option. If you're not servants of one another, you're looking to get ahead for you from them. And so you're biting at them, taking things from them, maybe with good contracts established by your lawyers, but that's what you're about. Whence comes wars and fightings among you? Is it not your passions that wage war in your members? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. That's what we're about. If we don't love, we're going to be driven by the love we have for self. And that's why we're sinners. And no matter what, we'd like to dress it up with law observance. But we can't. Now this is this last thought in 14 and, and 15. Is uh, the, the, the thing on the side, Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one anything, except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. In case you were wondering if this is a Pauline thought, front to back, top to bottom. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, which are all in the Ten Commandments. And then he says, and any other commandment are summed up. In this sentence, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's how I, that's how I love my neighbor. I obey the whole law. No, no, you got it backwards. They're summed up in loving your neighbor. And then he says, the reason that is, is not because you obeyed the law as law, and now you can claim to be loving. I gave my 10% I love financially. No, you don't love. You did. It's up for grabs whether you love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Because your morality is God keeping, you might say, the goodness of his creation intact by how you treat one another in your agency. And how we self-govern, how we are moved to treat one another. It's very important that we have it be naturally good rather than um, naturally bad with strong rules and punishments. You're perfected in love, it says in First John. It casts out all fear, for fear has to do with punishment. We live, if we live by law, we're living by bondage, we're living by punishment, we're living by rules, and we're just having it look a little bit better than absolute anarchy. But in Christ, 
you know, you guys get along together. And I don't even know if you'd be friends without Christ. I, maybe some of you would be. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, but God has made us one. We have made us closer neighbors than the neighbors who are around us in actual houses. But that's what we're called to. And figure out whether or not what you're doing and how you're living in your righteousness because that's where not taking up the flesh comes from. You're called to freedom. Don't use it for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. Far better for you to be thinking that um, as you think of giving to a ministry or giving to someone you know in need. You know, am I checking for the love or do I just know that it fulfills a command? Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very thankful. Keep us on the straight and narrow by the love your spirit gives us. Thank you. In your son's name, amen.